Welcome, everyone, to another episode of What Exit Jersey Stories. I'm your host, Nick Franco, and with me, as always, is Pete Riario. Pete, would and you like to introduce our guest? Yes, shall I? Let me start. So our next guest is best known as the guitarist for the highly successful American rock band Trickster. Their early 1990s debut release went on to sell over 500,000 copies, achieved gold record status, and their single, Give It To Me Good, rocketed to the number 26 spot on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Charts. Within one week, the video was number one on the Dial MTV Top 10 Video Countdown. Remain there for five, that's right, count them, five weeks straight. He's had the honor of doing shows with Def, Def Leppard, handily, handily, I'm sorry, filling in both for Vivian Campbell and Phil Collin on separate occasions, and did the same for Dennis DeYoung of Styx fame. He's also the guitarist for Tokyo Motor Fist with Ted Poley from Danger Danger. Steve has a new single out called Where Do We Run and is a singer, songwriter, and producer extraordinaire. I call him the Swiss Army Knife of American musicians, the pride of Paramus, Steve Brown. What's <laughs> happening, guys? Thank you for that unbelievable introduction. Wow. I... Uh... If I didn't know myself so well, I'd be somewhat impressed. <laughs> no, I'm impressed with you. You did you did good. I was like sitting there, oh really? I didn't know that about I didn't know that either. <laughs> I, I always love finding out new things. Right? I know. I locked myself up in uh, you know a bank vault and just research for <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we definitely try to do our research on our show. Advantage of um yeah, you know, having I seen see that. I have the advantage of you know having seen Trickster way back when when i was um a young lad uh, like 17 16 years old uh at the china club in hillsdale new jersey um oh god i'm sure steve you remember those days fondly pete tersher right was the was the the, the guy there right the, the yeah uh, yeah um, manager there. that was uh you know the china club was where trickster and a lot of other bands from the area from the you know the northern new jersey area but also Bands from all over the country came and played there. You know, I remember um, opening up Trickster. We opened up for the great band Sabotage back in the day. Wow. You know? Oh, yeah. John Olivia and Chris Sabotage. Olivia. Yeah. John, Chris Olivia, the guitar player, sadly, who died you know, yeah. years ago. But, man, it was right. an honor to play with those guys. So, yeah, the China Club was um, the, the, the club that basically Trickster – um, we, we honed our craft there playing, but I would say once a month from, you know, I think it was April of 1986, we started playing there doing these mm. Sunday night, all ages, which anybody mm. from uh, Bergen County will remember. Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember that great, well. great parking lot. It was the, what the King's shopping center you are and there was a friendlies. Correct. There was a friendlies in the yep. parking lot. Um, what, what, yeah, was it even I mean, Kings at that point? Or was it Stop and Shop? <laughs> it might have been like way long ago. Stop and Shop and Medimart. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man, but I'm pretty sure it was Kings. But you okay, know, yeah. I got to tell you, man, we had some of the greatest times of our lives there because, you know, as you can imagine, I mean, I was 15 years old when I started playing there. And wow. it was um, – it was a it was a magical time in rock and roll, and especially a magical time in northern New Jersey because you know that was right before 1986 was right when before Slippery When Wet took off the whole Bon Jovi yep. when Bon Jovi took over the world. So, um, you know, there was a, a whole you know really cool group of bands that would play there. You know, and it's very varied. It wasn't just you know uh, you know the the you know, the 80s hard rock bands that played there. There were a lot of metal bands that played there. Yes. There, oh, you yeah. Know, there, there was a great band that I st was st a huge fan of, this band Pharaoh. 
I don't know if you remember them, but oh, yep. I even they, have the record of Pharaoh. Actually, I, I still have it back there. The vinyl yep. man. I love that band. And so, you know, for all the listeners and, and viewers who were never there back in the day, any given Sunday night, it was these all ages nights. And, you know, Pete Tertia, who was the guy who was in a, you know, band Tertia, who was a Judas yep. Priest cover band. And he started this thing and he had great foresight to know that, you know, young kids needed a place to go to see shows. And he started putting on these concerts there. And it was what I was saying, what was really cool about the China Club was it would be like the bill would be Trickster, another great band, SS Steel, which was like a real metal band. And then Pharaoh, which was kind of like, you know, again, my description of them, they were like Kiss meets Duran Duran meets Billy Idol uh, meets the New York Dolls. Dead on. Wow. You know, it was fucking amazing, man. It was Really, really cool. And, you know, somehow all of these bands playing together, it made sense, you know, and it was a real great community of bands because we were, we would all sort of take care of each other. You know, the SS Steel guys, you know, Steve Mazza, Maz, who's one of my best friends yeah, in the I world. With him. You know, when I first yeah. met those guys, man, dude, I was you know, a, a guy who was wearing, you know, fluorescent clothes. We tri- trickster when we started playing, we were we looked we were dressing like Van Halen did on the fifty one fifty tour. Oh wow. We all <laughs> colorful clothes and yep. blazers. And then SS Steel comes in, man. These guys are like hardcore biker metal dudes. Metallica meets motorhead. Man, they scared the shit out of me. <laughs> but you know, and, and, and you know, but it was really funny because you know the guys and Pharaoh would be in, the, and, and the China Club had this dressing room that was a broom closet, basically. And you got oh, three geez. bands in there, and these guys, you know, the Pharaoh guys and the SS Steel guys were much older than us, you know, mm. and so they were doing things in the dressing room that, let's say, I never saw before, you know. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, I was scared of those guys. And as time went on, you know, of course we got to be such great friends, but in the beginning, man, it was like rock and roll high school education college you know you're going to meet these guys where you know we're used to seeing you know all happy go lucky and then you're seeing these you know it was it was it was a real incredible learning experience and again it was where i think all the bands that played there we developed our chops and honed and we learned what things worked and what things didn't and um you know i know for trickster we learned really early on that uh girls are the ticket for uh for packing the house and luckily um man when we when we started going up the ladder and success started happening and all of a sudden be like you know yeah you guys sold 200 tickets tonight you guys sold 225 253 sold out at like 300 man it was that was some good times and um and then you know we all know the story wherever the girls are guys will follow so it was it was just magic man it was a great great time in bergen county and um you know, all of us, we used to keep all the gear at my parents' house, you know, in, in Paramus. And so we would load up all the cars and vans with all the gear, you know, bring it up from my basement. And then we'd head out to the China Club. And then we'd come back at, you know, 11, 12, 
one o'clock in the morning after we were partying afterwards. And, you know, we had to be real quiet on my street to make sure that, you know, Vinny Joya, who was Gus's drum tech at the time, a couple of times he dropped the cymbals like at one Ooh. o'clock in the morning. All the neighbors were <laughs> So it was, uh, and Burnham is like a real blue collar town. You know, you didn't want like, you know, <laughs> the local guy probably has to get up like 8 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Dad, my dad was the vice principal at Eastbrook Middle School down the street. So, oh, wow. Here, here he was, you know, the vice principal and his sons, you know, his son wants to be a <laughs> rock and roll star. <laughs> but, you know, again, man, I tell, I tell everybody when I, wherever I go around the world and people ask me stories about New Jersey and I just, you know, and still to this day, I live here. I, I'm up in Ringwood now, but Bergen County is just so um, vital. I think to all of us and you guys, I'm sure you have the same stories, you know, where back in the day, you know, the LA bands had the sunset strip, the Bergen County bands, we had the shopping malls. That's where we promoted our mm-hmm. show. Mm. You know, and I was telling I was telling my mom and dad, you know, and some friends a couple of weeks ago that our Saturday ritual before every China Club show was to go to Paramus Park, go to the Garden State Plaza, go to the Bergen Mall. And we would hand out flyers to all the girls, man. And it oh, my worked. God. It was, you know, it was uh, Instagram before there was social media. That was the way we had to do yep. it. And um, and it worked. And Steve, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, do you remember the wild turkey that was in Paramus Park, that statue? Yeah. What was that all about? (laughs) (laughs) You you know, it's funny, man. I was just there a couple weeks ago. We went with my mom and dad and my wife and my daughter. We went to go get some Christmas, some uh, ski jackets, some uh, birthday gift from my little daughter, you know, my nine-year-old daughter, Jade. And we were just reminiscing about Paramus Park, about, you remember the the waterfall or whatever, that rock? thing yep. that was there um it was just such a cool place as was the bergen mall the fountain in the middle of the bergen oh, yeah, mall. yeah, yeah. That, that like like rounded fountain uh over there at bergen yeah that was you know again all those malls at that time in the 70s and the 80s were so great and then you know one of the great things about the bergen mall and i was you know my wife and i we were at cheap trick the other night at the wellmont theater oh, and i oh, saw awesome I saw my good friend Rob Cavuto, who's a photographer, and I think he's got an online guitar magazine. Long story short, he used to work at World Imports. So anybody, oh my God, yes, remembers World Imports. And dude, I, I used I, to go there all the time. You and me. <laughs> I'm sure we saw each other there. I think, yeah, right. I think I still have some posters and, you know, some Kiss and Van Halen pictures that I bought there. But that was a place. You know, that I spent so all me and all my friends, we spent so much time at World Imports just talking and looking at all the posters and the tour books. And, you know, it was such a great, again, you know, Jersey, what exit? You know, I can't stress how great Bergen County, it still is, but how great it was if you were into rock and roll in the 70s and 80s, especially to grow up in during that time because you had all the great record stores. You had, uh, you know, Disco Mat on Route 4. Oh, yeah. Had, yeah. Um, 
what Harmony Hut, all, you know, and then, you know, let's go to the most important stores for me, which was Sam Ash Music. Um, yep, right on floor as well. Four, yep. Where I bought my first real good guitars and I would spend all my after schools there playing Van Halen songs and playing all the Kramer and Charvel guitars before I could afford one. So, you know, and that was it. And then the other, you know, uh, famous place for me was the great music store musically yours in in maywood right on yes I, I used to take yeah. lessons there <laughs> yeah too, man i mean that holy was crap 1978 <laughs> i started taking guitar lessons there and it changed my life forever but well, wow. who was the, the the uh the owner there was was it ed was the guy yes yep. yeah he was yeah, he was great yeah yeah you hit on a great point like earlier is that you know when i used to go to the china club we would also go see Hades, a very heavy band. Yeah. The same, but then like, you know, you guys would be playing a week later. We'd go see you guys. There was like this unity. It didn't matter that, you know, Hades was a heavier, thrashier band. It was, this was just good music, you know? That was right. The, that's what the kids went for. Of course. And so, you know, that there was no really like, um you know, a line, you know, of, you know in the sand between the bands. I felt like I could listen to, you know, Mucky Pup playing, um, at the China Club and and enjoy them and and love you guys just as much you know it just you you all born entertainers you know yeah well that's the point I was trying to make about that how unique it was and I tell this story a lot you know when we went out when we finally got signed and went out to LA to do our first record you know and I heard all the stories but you know there's a big difference as far as the camaraderie the Jersey kind of friendship bond that all the bands had with each other and you know whether it was the northern new jersey bergen county bands you know trickster tna sidekicks um ss steel uh you know i mean i could go on and on thinking about all these great bands pharaoh and and prowler and hades and then you go when we became really extremely tight with the skid row guys who were the south jersey guys and then you had skid row you had prophet you had edgar casey you had tt quick and tt yes, quick is another right. band that trickster opened for at the china club which was you wow. know uh, incredible because wow. I remember being a little kid getting the Aquarian Weekly and yep, seeing T.T. Quick, you know, White Tiger and, and Twisted Sister before Twisted Sister got signed. So to play mm -hmm. with T.T. Quick and, you know, Mark is still at Mark Tornillo is still a dear friend. And, you know, those guys, exactly. you know, again, we learned a lot from every band. It was like, Again, what I said about going to rock and roll high school, we learned what to do and what not to do by playing that. And it was always, you know, I think we subconsciously always knew every night we're going to have to, you know, it was a battle because you always wanted to be put on the best show. But at the same time, you're going to what are you going to learn from the other bands? You know, and mm -hmm. I think but, you know, long story short getting back to the LA thing. When we went to LA, I learned very quickly how doggy dog it was. And those bands, man, they would, they would, if you were going out, if you were sharing a bill with a band, they would unplug your amps. They would do anything to try to oh, sabotage your show where if we were having a bad night, if I like, let's say blew up ahead, you know, and I told this story on an interview last week, we played mingles down in uh, Sayreville, New Jersey. And I remember it was like the worst night, man. I blew up like three, two or three Marshall heads. Scotty oh. Hill 
from Skid Row was there, and he, him and Snake lived a block away. He ran home and grabbed his Marshall, the Silver Jubilee that he used on the first record. He brought it back for me to be at least be able to finish the last couple songs. And you know that would never happen with an L with L.A. bands, man. They would never do that. So you know, I always talk about you know, and I think Bon Jovi coined the phrase the Brotherhood, the New Jersey Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. I, we all had that mentality to where, hey, man, this is a party. Whether you're a heavy metal band, whether you're a pop metal band like we were, or whether you're, let's say, a glam, you know, Durand or 80s new wave band sort of the way uh, Farrell was. Let's all have fun together and let's all try to help each other make it big. You know, and so Steve, like in the 80s, you know, when 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 Trickster blew up alongside all the other bands that you know, were popular at the time, like, let's say, you know, uh, Cinderella, Skid Row and all that. Did you find that there was competition, I mean, amongst the bands, amongst the 80s bands of, you know, of that ilk, I would say? Um, or, or was it more know, the fr friendly competition as you're, you're like describing, like the, the brotherhood, but competitive brotherhood versus well, the L.A. competition? And I'm sure. saying like when you were touring, you know, when you were doing arenas and all that, like, did you feel a need? Or not a need, but um. Well, I mean, well, the need for us. I mean, look, I grew up in an athletic family, so there was always that drive to be, be as best the best you can be, you know, on all fronts. So it was, you know, we put on a very energetic performance, and whatever we lacked in musical ability, we certainly made up for in stage presence. And so it was always that mentality where, well, if we're not going to be you know, the, the, the best singers or the best drummer, best baby. Well, we're going to put on the best show. We're going to put on the most high energy show because, you know, again, I never wanted to be anything else, but what trickster became, which was when I started the band and it was from seeing, you know, Van Halen for the first time, 1982 on the diver down tour. Oh, wow. I had seen kiss my first show, 1979. That was mind blowing and, and life changing. But I knew that Kiss was Kiss was so unrealistic and they were like superheroes. When I saw Van Halen in 1982, that was the moment where I said, this is exactly the type of band I want to have. I want to have a band that brings the party where it's fun and people singing and girls throwing their, you know, bras and panties up on stage and it's nuts and drinking. And, you know, it's like a backyard barbecue, you know, New Year's Eve, Christmas, all that in one to me that's what van halen encapsulated in their shows especially in the 80s that party fun vibe so you know that's all we wanted to do and um you know Steve, so no brown m&ms in the trickster writer yeah <laughs> <laughs> hey man my name's steve brown we always had brown m&ms <laughs> but uh, we, a good point we got, all, we got the promoters gave us all the ones van halen didn't didn't have you know what i mean but yeah. Uh, yeah, that was always our thing. It was about being fun. So for us, yeah, there was always competition. I mean, do, l let's let's not kid ourselves. Any band that gets on stage, look, you want to kick ass and you want to show that you're the best band. Hey, man, I'll be your bro. I'll party. I'll drink beers with you after the show. But when I get up on that stage, no, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was it in the nicest possible way. You know, right. and if somebody blew up, you know, if their gear blew up, somebody's, you know, they need an extra guitar. It was always there, 
you know, which I think was much different, uh, you know, than the LA scene. So, you know, again, my memories of, um, you know, again, with the Skid Row guys and, you know, um, I'm trying to think of any other, you know, just that's it. And, you know, most importantly, yeah. you know, more than that is the bigger guys like John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, who were the guys who kind of took us under their wing. And you know, at the beginning, you know, when John and Slippery When Wet took off, you know, he was the first guy that we gave our trickster demo tape to. And man, he called us on our, you know, on Pete's answering machine. He left a message and said, hey, man, I think you guys are great. He gave us Doc's address in New York City and wow, said, keep McGee. sending me tapes. And every time we made a new demo, I would send it to him. And lo and behold, he would call back. Hey, man, I got your tape. You guys are getting better and better. And, you know, it was very impressionable. And it was a big um learning experience for us and for me especially as the, sort of the band leader and the main songwriter as you know how to treat other bands you know to help everybody you know snake and rachel from skid row man those guys were the same way you know john told them hey man take care of steve and the trickster guys and and um you know they hooked us up with their lawyer and their business manager and you know the only thing we didn't get from them was doc mcgee but you know you can't have everything, but, you know, again, getting back to it, that brotherhood with all the bands and how we took care of each other. And you know what? It's still there to this day because, you know, we, you know, the Skid Row guys and I talk all the time. We text each other and nothing's ever changed. You know, so, I mean, it's it's a it's a really uh, it's a great friendship. And, a, you know, and again, it's because I think we're from New Jersey. I think it's that Jersey mm -hmm. You know, that that kind of code that you take care of you, the brotherhood again. It's great that you've absorbed that. And, you know, and just how the other bands treated you that, you know, now, you know, to to give back, I guess, imagine also maybe with any pay it perhaps forward, like basically. new and upcoming bands that you may take on your wing or take a liking to, you know. Um, of course. I mean, that's yeah. always, you know, look, man, I'm always here. And especially, you know, there's some great bands out, you know, that are coming out of Jersey. There's a great band that I worked with when they were kids, this band called The Revel, who was coming up on the scene. And you know, my, uh, my brother, Paul Riario, who is in um, I think you may know him. He's the, the tech editor for Guitar World Magazine. I, yeah, I know you, brother. Of course. He said to say hello, by the way. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. Paul, yeah, Paul just told me I went to go see Buck Cherry at Starland and the Revel. Is that how I pronounce it? Yep. They opened up for Buck Cherry. And I never knew that my brother played with the drummer in that band um, of the Revel. Yeah. Yeah. But please go yep. on, uh, Steve, about them. That. So again, you know, look, I'm always here looking for, you know, local talent and trying to help out. And I produce, you know, I have a kid that I'm working with now who's actually playing bass for uh, Eric Martin and I Saturday night at our gig at the, oh, at excellent. the Jason Draven, Jason Columbini, Jason Draven, who plays, he just played with stars, you know, Richie Rano. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, he's 19 years old, I think now. And he's, you know, like the rebel, he's the upcoming and, you know, super, super talented. He's recorded in the studio here and I'm kind of you know kind of mentoring him and that's you know again that's what you can do to make sure that bands don't make mistakes you know and sort of you know anything that I can do to help out the way that you know let, let's say you know the Skid Row guys or the Bon Jovi guys helped us mm. excellent tell me about like the trajectory how did it go from Trickster being at the China Club playing Studio One to you know, getting on the stages of major venues like Madison Square Garden. I mean, like in between all that, was it were you being courted by major labels or was it like MCA came out, offered you a great deal and you took it? 
Um, like if you could just kind of capsulize that, I mean. Yeah, I mean, look, it was you guys were there. It was one of those things where we just every couple months we hit a new plateau and it just kept getting bigger and bigger to where it becomes undeniable. And at that point, you know, in 1988, um, the band Trickster in, in, in the area and especially, you know, we started playing that place, Studio One in North Newark, New Jersey. Yep. We played a lot out in Staten Island. We started branching out playing South Jersey. So we became, you know, like once Skid Row got signed, it was like we were next in line. It was, you know, there was no doubt in most people's mind who the next band that was going to get signed in this whole, you know, and again, this was the, 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 the top and the, 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 the sort of top of the mountain of the eighties hard rock, you know, to where MTV was playing everybody. And it was Cinderella, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, Van Halen, you know, you name it, rat docking. It was the, you know, it was the, you know, sort of the, uh, the pinnacle of it. So we were a part of that wave. And um, yeah, the labels started coming out. We met this management company, um, these guys, Ken and Joel, who were Shark Entertainment, who were sort of working under Peter Mensch and Cliff Bernstein, Q Prime, who managed Def Leppard and Metallica and yep. Tesla. And so the first order of business, Trickster started, we be, got introduced to the Def Leppard guys and Phil Collin and I became instant, you know, friends. And, you know, here we are 32 years later, you know, the guy's like a brother to me. And that's how it really began and getting in the big leagues and always being around when Bon Jovi was somewhere, we would be there. When Skid Row was doing a show, we were always there, you know, and that was, you know, the networking aspect of it, you know, how nowadays, you know, you, you don't have to leave your house to network because you do everything on social media it's all about that back in the day you had to be on the scene so we were in new york three nights a week going to the cat club going to the limelight wherever anything was happening we were you know if we heard that you know john and richie were doing a acoustic gig some private you know some secret gig we would be there if we knew Def Leppard was doing a private I, I spent my senior prom with Def Leppard I didn't go to my senior prom Def Leppard was doing a Z100 spirit contest at the Capitol Theater in Passaic you know oh, I was there wow. and my fucking car got towed that night too <laughs> we, we, we've, we've had the car that. towed for, like going to the Capitol Theater and having the car towed yeah I think everyone's experienced that that went to that yeah. place the yeah. Don't ever park. Don't ever park in the Burger King parking lot because they'll nope. fucking tell you. So um, yeah, I mean, wheels. That, that's what it was, man. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't just, you know, look, man, it never anybody will tell you, even this day, no matter what, music is only one part of a band becoming successful. It's the image. It's being on the scene, being there, being in the right place, you know, and and for some reason. We seem to have it all for that moment. And uh, getting back to the whole record company thing, you know, it was interesting, guys. You know, when we started, you know, getting courted was because Peter Mensch, Def Leppard's manager, who arguably at that time was one of the most powerful people in the music business, because we know in 1988, you know, Bon Jovi and Def Leppard were the two biggest bands in the world at that mm, moment. Yep. And so Peter Bench was going around every record label with our demo, with our tape that was produced by George Draculius, who went on to produce the first two Black Crows records. So there was a lot of heat going on. And he was giving the tape to everybody saying, these guys are going to open up for Def Leppard on their next tour. So if that wasn't a good endorsement, and then the next thing you know, we have, you know, um, 
I remember the A&R people from Geffen Records came to my mom and dad's house and they wanted to sign us. And um, and then it was Polygram, Mercury Records. It was everybody who was anybody was courting us. And it was really exciting. And but I got to tell you, we didn't get a deal right away. And it was kind of uh, it was a little discouraging. I remember I distinctly remember after. Geffen came out to our, my mom and dad's house. We rehearsed for him and we hung out. My mom made made them uh, made, you know, a couple people from Geffen made them uh, sandwiches and ShopRite iced tea. And, uh, you know, I remember just going PJ and I remember PJ didn't drive at the time. So afterwards I had to drive my I had just gotten my license and I had to drive him back from Paramus to Richfield. And I remember saying, man, can you believe this? It's happening. But long story short, we didn't get signed, and it was another six, seven months later till we got um, got our deal with Mechanic MCA Records. So we were like, "Oh my God, this is finally going to happen!" But it didn't happen the way we thought it was, you know, was going to happen. But uh, thank God, Steve Sinclair from Mechanic MCA Records came and saw us. We did a gig, um, forget a sanctuary in New York City. It was us and Law and Order. Who, oh uh, man, I love that band. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, they were they were great. We did a lot of gigs with them, and again, there you go. That was another band who was completely different from Trickster, but we mm-hmm. did gigs with them, and it worked. It was a perfect marriage. They were kind of like the cult. They were that New York City, Staten Island, dark hard rock, you know, ACDC. And here we were. We were like a Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, Van Halen, fun, happy, you know, pretty boy band, if you will. But it worked, and you know, and and. You know, we got signed that night. Steve Sinclair came and his exact words were, you know, when I saw you guys, when I saw Trickster, he goes, I knew you were going to be a band that I were going to I was going to be able to retire from. And it was true. It happened for him. And um, and uh, and, you know, the rest is history. From there, we went out to L.A. in the in the you know, fall of uh, late summer, fall of 89 to record our record. um, And. you know, every dream we ever had came true after that. Awesome. And Steve, I read an interview with you about, like, you know, your early musical, um, something that, in other words, um, that that really struck you and 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 made you jump into the pool of of, of uh, you know the, this musical world was, um, I think, it was it your sister-in-law's? Is that right? When, um, it was a, a, a Kiss record. Is that correct? I mean, it is that is. like your first? Is that the first memory that comes to you about? Hey man, th- this is you know, th- this is this what I really want to do. Rock in my world, I might you know want to make this um something uh you know a career or something, right? Uh, without without a doubt, I mean, uh, again, that's the kiss rock and roll over. And the story is, uh, it was 1978. I was by my brother Mike, my oldest brother Mike, his girlfriend at the time, Marianne, who's my sister-in-law now. Um, I was over their house and they lived right on Paramus Road. I used to work at the gas station that the family are right on Paramus Road and Ridgewood Ave, the Exxon station right on the corner. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> that was, that was uh, Mary Paul, Paul Schmelzer, his his um, his uh, gas station that he owned. And I, I used to work there as a kid. That was the, I used to work there. It was my part time job that paid for my first Charvel guitar, you oh. know, that, that I had to pay oh. off from my parents. But so 1978, I'm there, and I, I used to hang out there, and you know, my brother, my brother would bring me over, and I just run, for, you know, run around the house, and I remember vividly looking in his room and seeing on the floor 
kiss rock and roll over. I didn't know what it was, but I I remember that it was like calling me. It was, you know, the the record was shaking. Smoke might have been coming out of it. It wasn't, but I'm just, you know, it's a good story. <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember picking it up and looking at the cover going, what is this? What is this? You know, at that point, you know, I had 245s as a little kid. The Lion Sleeps Tonight um, by whoever that was, you know, and, and I used to play that constantly. And I had Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. Those are my two records that I owned at that point, which I don't even know if I owned them. But so Paulie, who was uh, my my sister-in-law's younger brother, he came in and he goes, hey, man, you, you should borrow. Take this record home. You'll like this. And I did. I took it home and I put it on my little rec- you know, my record player that I had in my room. And I remember dropping the needle down and hearing the acoustic guitars, you know what song I want you. And I remember hearing it going, Oh, this is neat. It sounded like the Beatles to me. It sounded like Rod Stewart had that, you know, Rod Stewart thing. And then all of a sudden, man, when the guitars and the drums, I want you, dude, I swear to God, I was in a kiss concert. The explosions were going off. It was that immediate and that powerful and then listening to the rest of the record take me calling dr love when i heard calling dr love and hearing gene simmons for the first time that beginning and it was spooky man i didn't know who he was at that point i but i kind of figured i'm like that's got to be him you know you know looking at the picture that's got to be the demon and hearing calling dr love with that voice you know you need my love baby oh so bad it was just unbelievable that immediate that powerful completely changed my life forever and um you know that and then fast forward a couple months later my neighbor up the street brought down the eight track tape of van halen one and he goes steve i hear you like kiss you're gonna love this band van halen and it was what he told me was gene simmons discovered him you know, and boom, I'm like, I put it in. I want to hear it. And I put it in. And again, it was the, you know, it was the same sort of reaction. And especially here in eruption for the first time, you know, to me, that was like, you know, I had, you know, I knew what lead guitar was, you know, I knew Johnny be good. And I knew the guitar solos that were on, um, that were on rock and roll over. But when you hear when, 1978, hear an eruption for the first time and when ed ed got to the end when he's doing the tapping part that was otherworldly i didn't you know again like most people especially as an eight-year-old or i could have been yeah i think yeah i was eight at the time you know at that point i didn't know what it was it didn't sound like a normal guitar was that a synthesizer was it a violin well i don't know what it was but i needed to know and a couple months later, I found out when I started taking guitar lessons at Musically Yours uh, in, in Maywood, New Jersey. And, um, you know, again, those two records still to this day, they're probably my favorite rock and roll records. And, you know, as you can imagine, they're so near and dear to my heart. But 
again, um, ask any Kiss fan or a- any Van Halen fan. I think it'd tell you the same. Those two records, you know, for my money are the best of the best. And, um, you know, just life changing, you know, life changing in so many ways. And, you know, fast forward, you know, another 15 years or, or what, 1978 to, you know, 1991, 92, when I first met Ed Van Halen, you know, for the first time, and then going on tour with Kiss in 1992, you know, meeting meeting all of your heroes and, so you know, becoming friends with them, you know, so it's, um, you know, again, I say it all the time. I don't, I never want to sound like a broken record, but guys, you know, you're, you're talking to one of the luckiest dudes in the world, you know, uh, from Paramus, New Jersey, every dream I ever had, musically and family wise everything has come true a hundred times over and you know i mean part part of the reason again is is living in new jersey bergen county where i grew up with great friends great family great atmosphere great time growing up in the 80s man i tell i try to tell my oldest daughter lily you have no idea how much fun it was you guys were there oh, true mm-hmm. no cell phones no how did guys what i want to know how did we do all the shit that we did man? <laughs> 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 a bicycle uh <laughs> or, 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 or or used a pay phone it's like uh, to, to call someone hey can you can you pick us up at the uh like totally. and i'd be like 17 18 years old i tell my parents i'm like yeah you know i'm going to madison square garden to go see iron maiden they're like all right see you have a good time like it just they just tossed uh, us out the door and like and they knew we were going to be okay you know but yeah oh man oh, yeah. those memories like you said there just there's you can't possibly translate it to you know um today's generation or because like you had to live and experience it yeah but, you know, well, what, luckily, what was it like, Steve? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, what was it like when, okay, after uh, Trickster, you know, like once you had, you know, like had the uh, the videos, MTV, and, you know, like your album had hit gold, and what was it like coming back to, I'm trying to think if it was the Continental or was it the Brendan Byrne Arena still, what was it like coming to the arena, your home turf, to play? Yeah, I mean, that, the Meadowlands Arena, that's what it says on the ticket. So it was the Meadowlands at that time. Mm. That was the dream come true. You know, I did my, you know, PJ and I did our YouTube sort of little mini documentary about it. Look, that was what we wanted to do as Trickster. It was never about making videos, making records. It was the only thing we ever talked about when we were kids was playing the Meadowlands Arena, like Van Halen, like Kiss, like Bon Jovi, like Rat, you know, like Skid Row. That's all we wanted to do. And here it was, here, you know, um, April of 1991, coming coming to our hometown. Our record had just went gold and, uh, you know, one in a million number one on MTV for 13 weeks. I mean, it was just we were on top of the world. So it was again, it was every dream come to fruition. And that was the crowning moment for us being able to, you know, finally play the Meadowlands Arena in the arena that we would sneak backstage to every show, you know, um, and finally, you know, finally, you know, all the security guys for years knew us and they would always let us go back without passes because I think they all believed in us. And I think they knew, yeah, these guys are going to make it big someday. And finally, I remember 
you know, uh, the night, you know, getting there and coming backstage and seeing the security guys and finally showing my laminate going, hey, man, I finally really got a backstage pass this time. You know, <laughs> we're, we're legit. And um, but look, to play your hometown arena with your family and all your friends and all of the people, all the fans and the art, like I said, all the Bergen County Passaic County, everybody from Jersey and New York, the close Staten Island, who helped make us become successful. And we're part of this was like I tell everybody all the cool things that I get to do in the music business, tour around the world, recording studios, everything. It's it, none of it means anything if I can't share it with my friends and my family. And that's the same like talking to you guys, sharing these stories. It means everything to me, whoever's watching this, to be able to tell you how great and how important growing up in New Jersey. And look, look at me. I'm a knucklehead from Paramus, New Jersey, who got to fly all over the world and play rock and roll and, you know, you know, hang out with Eddie Van Halen and play Mumbley Stadium with Def Leppard. And yeah, I got a free T-shirt too. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's all about it. And I say it all the time and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I don't do this for me. You know, I do this for all of us. And that's you guys and everybody. And especially all around the world, if you're watching, yes, that's you. But it's really you know for for all my jersey people that's you know where my heart and you know and where i grew up so that's where the roots are so you know that's really what it's all about so playing the meadowlands and then we got to play there uh a year later we got to play their opening for kiss so if you can imagine that i mean that was surreal being able to you know introduce my mom and dad to gene simmons and paul stanley backstage at the meadowlands you know that was a powerful powerful moment it's just remarkable. I mean, you know, the, the story of you, I mean, how old were you? Eight years old, I think, when you, you know, had rock and roll all over and, and you know, yeah. looking at the cover. I mean, to, to go from that to, you know, opening up for Kiss at, at Madison, it was at Madison Square Garden, I believe you were on. No, a, no, a no, no, that was, that was at the Meadowlands too. Yeah, we okay. did the Meadowlands in Nassau with them. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and was Faster Pussycat on that tour? No. They were, they were. Okay. They were oh, on wow. that tour. It was us, Faster Pussycat and, uh, and Kiss. Now on yeah. the uh, on the revenge tour, which you know, for a lot of uh, you know non makeup Kiss fans, that was their favorite. I think that's when Kiss kind of got all their pieces together. You know, they figured out the image thing, mm -hmm. and then that was pretty much the last tour that they did without makeup. You know, Steve, and then right, you know, a couple years later is when they you know reunited with uh, Ace and Peter. So yes, um, Steve, when are you writing a book? Because it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, when I was researching, you know, and, and again, like I said, I've, you know, I, I've owned the 40 foot Ringo records, the, all the trickster records back when I was a youngin. But um, I, I was just it was exhausting because like how much your career has spanned. It's just I mean, like I haven't even touched on there's so little I've touched on. You know what I mean? And I'm wondering, like, is there maybe like a book in your future, perhaps or about uh I, would, I mean, look, I would definitely say so. I've said this before, you know, guys, luckily for me, you know, the career, I mean, I just turned 50, 51, 51 over the summer. And, uh, you know, look, I, I've said it before. This is the second half of my life. And I, I honestly believe that we're just getting started. Good you know, you. I feel like as a musician, 
as a producer, as a writer, uh, just as a person, I feel like I'm at the best point in my life, mentally, physically, you know, I'm, uh, I'm two and a half years sober. I don't rock, I don't rock and roll all night and party every day anymore. So, you know, I feel at this time that I feel like the best is yet to come. I mean, I, I vocally as a singer, as a guitar player, as a writer, producer, everything, I feel like I'm at my best, you know, and my, my last record that I did, uh, Tokyo Motor Fist Lions, which we made here in my studio. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. You know, all around, you know, as a, as a producer, writer, engineer, singer, guitar player, it's the best thing. So, look, man, my goal is just to keep going. And, you know, that that attitude that yeah, I think um, some people have in, as musicians where, oh, man, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years. I proved everything. You know, I don't believe in that, man. I still I still believe no matter what age you are you should still do your best and be at your best, you know, and it's a, I think it's a, you know, there's a thing going around this business with a lot of old rock stars where they can't sing anymore. So they're using backing tracks or they have, um, you know, offstage guys singing for them. You know, man, look, I'm really good friends. My good friend, Dennis D. Young, 74 years old from, you know, singer of sticks, Dennis mm -hmm. D. Young, 74 years old. That guy, I still play with him from time to time. He still sings all those songs in the original key. He sounds as good as he ever did. Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, another one of these guys, mm -hmm. man. So look, that's the game. And and look, Mick Jagger's 79 years old. And that guy, for my money, he's as good as he was 20 years ago at, at 59. You know, those guys, the Stones, 79, 80 years old, and they're still crushing it out there, you know? And so that's the goal. So for me... Writing a book right now, I think only half the story is told. And I, you know, I think with everything that's going on, I wish I could tell you things, but you know, I, I'm doing some really incredible things now um, with certain bands, you know, these iconic bands that that I can't even tell you about. But I'm hoping that within the next 20 years, you know, these will be part of the book, and you guys go, oh, now I get it. Now I know why I can't tell this story. Mm -hmm. But um. You know, again, it's just it's the love of it, you know, and at the end of the day, guys, this is what I love to do, you know, and um, yeah. it's just what a it's great attitude that you have, Steve. I, I just love, you know, that it's such a positive outlook that you have. And again, like you said, like, you know, this is still like, you know, the beginning chapters of your life, man. You, you've got so much more uh, ahead of you. And I'm sure everyone is excited to see, you know, what the future holds for you with all these projects. Um, I hope so, man. And, you know, yeah. I mean, you guys talked about it. You know, I just released my first ever, which is crazy, my first ever solo single, you know, yeah, over the I really where loved do it, we run, you know, and it's like. You know, there you go. That's the beginning of a new chapter because it, that's definitely something that I'm going to do. And I think, you know, I've said it before, but I'm probably going to release, you know, twice a year, maybe one song, two songs a year. So maybe by the time I'm like 60, 62, I'll have 11 or 12 songs. Then I'll put out my first solo record. And then, <laughs> you know, maybe at that point I'll start, maybe at that point I'll start getting ready and, you know, start writing down the book. But, uh, I am going to, you know, I will tell you guys, and I don't think I've told anybody this, but I am going to start probably early next year. I am going to start filming myself 
just telling my stories, you know, because I definitely, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan and I'm real. I've really gotten into the whole documentary thing and footage. And, you know, I spent the last, you know, year and a half during the pandemic, um, you know, digitizing all of my, you know, footage, all of the trickster stuff, my home movies, all the original analog tapes. So I'm really big on preserving the history. So, you know, that's something that I definitely, before a book, I'm going to start, you know, just telling all the stories but really getting in depth. So I have it. And what I've got in my head is what I'm going to do is every year or every couple years, I'm going to start at the same spot. But so let's say when I'm 70, if we start editing documentary, you're going to see me telling the stories from let's say age 52 to age 70 and see where the difference and hopefully, hopefully my face doesn't, get too messed up looking, but you know, uh, it's going to be an interesting thing, but I have sort of, you know, I got, I got ideas about how I want this to, you know, how I want it to look. And again, you know, I just watched, uh, PJ just turned me on to it and I just watched the, uh, the documentary on Netflix about the band sparks, who was like one of my new favorite. Oh man, you gotta watch this documentary. It is, um, very reminiscent kind of, I will say, kind of of PJ and I about guys who never stopped. And it's about two brothers, this band Sparks, who started in the 60s in California, who um, they, they kind of broke big in the UK. And I thought they were an English band. And if you see them, see their 70s Sparks, you'll think they're a British band, you know. And it's funny because... When I heard about Sparks about six months ago, way before this documentary came out, I sent Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, my good buddy, an email. And I said, hey, man, what's up with this UK band Sparks? And he sent me an email about it. He's like, they're not, you know, and Joe, they're not they're not a, a British band, man. They're from Los Angeles. Come on, dude. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. But watching the documentary, the one thing that when Sparks broke – Everybody in the world thought they were a British band because they got their start like on top of the pops and the mm-hmm. old gray whistle test. But you got to watch it. It's one of the best rock documentaries ever made. And I've watched them all. And I'm just, you know, it's it's, you know, definitely you know, one of my passions in life. So, you know, getting back to what I want to do with whether it's Trickster or PJ and I or um, you know, my own story, you know, is, is starting to get that stuff together. So, you know, all you bands out there, if you have any footage, especially, you know, uh, Northern New Jersey, you know, Bergen County bands, you know, get in touch with me. I can help you out and lead you in the right direction because there's an art to that and you have to do it the right way. And especially when it comes to, you know, baking tapes and transferring and doing all that stuff, sometimes you only get one shot at doing it. So you Mm -hmm. don't screw it up. Great. Steve, uh, speaking of your time with Def Leppard, um, how much time did you have when you found out, you know, that you were, you know, in both instances, covering for Phil Collin and then covering for Vivian Campbell? And was it challenging, um, you know, to to learn the parts? But just because each of their parts are so unique, uh, not just musically, but I'm, when I say musically, I'm saying not just the guitar parts, but the the vocal harmonies. Is that correct? I mean, um, oh, yeah. 
that, you know, yeah, that you'd have to match up properly with Phil or on the on the opposite side, match up properly with Vivian. Right, right. Well, you know, look, you know, the 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 friendship goes back 30 plus years. So when when Vivian got diagnosed with cancer in 2013, you know, Phil immediately went to Joe and Sav and said, you know, I got the guy, my guy, Steve, you know, Steve Brown, who's, you know, they, they were big fans, the whole band, they were huge fans of 40 foot Ringo and 40 foot Ringo, you know, for all you people who don't know his band PJ and I have with Steve Mazza Maz yep. from SS Steel, you know, the atomic uh, pop band, you know, sort of cheap trick with crunchier guitars. We were going to go out on tour with Def Leppard, but it never worked out. Long story short, um, Phil and I, you know, of course, we're singers also as well as being guitar players. So as soon as um, they needed to find somebody, Phil went to everybody and said, I got the guy, Steve. And, you know, Steve, 40 for Ringo, like, oh, it's perfect. You know, he plays and, you know, I got the gig because I could sing, you know, and sing all those, you know, the high you know, Paul, some sugar on me, you know, that Perfect. scratchy mutlang, you know, voice and also be able to do the super high parts. You know, as Joe says, Steve can do all the mutt parts, you know, because <laughs> mutt would do all the super high, you know, yeah. When you hang out with Def Leppard, it's hard, man, not to do the British, you know, the accent. <laughs> you got it down. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. You, know, you spend enough time with them, you know, and, you know. And every night we are we doing are we doing fucking Stonehenge tonight? No, we're not. Final <laughs> <laughs> tap reference there. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so when when they brought me in, you know, they had a summer tour booked for 2013, and so they sent me a hard drive with all the songs live, and I was able to you know learn everything in Pro Tools, you know, I'm in my studio. So it really made you know everything. Uh, really a lot easier than, you know, having a, you know, listen to the records. I was able to single out all the parts, but, you know, with Def Leppard, you, it's always, it always helps when you get asked to fill in for a band that they're your favorite, one of your favorite bands. So, you know, not knowing all the stuff, I knew it already, you know what I mean? So learning it was, you know, not as hard as I thought would think you'd think it would be, but I got to tell you, the Def Leppard stuff is a lot more challenging and the guitar parts and the vocal parts are a lot trickier than most people think. And that is the beauty of Def Leppard's writing, you know, whether it's Steve Clark's, you know, sort of um, uh, non-traditional way of writing guitar parts and playing weird melodies, Phil or, you know, whoever wrote these parts, Sav, you know, wrote a lot of the Def Leppard riffs and stuff like that. So it was a lot more challenging. And, you know, Mutt Lang being the producer, you listen to it and it sounds so sweet and easy on the ears. But when you dive into it, it's really intricate. You know, the arrangements are, some of them are strange. So it's not the standard, you know, arrangement that I would be used to as a songwriter. So there were definitely some challenging aspects about it. But again, man, every day coming down to my studio to get to oh wait what am i going to work on today oh i got to chart out gods of war or i got to chart out you know because at that time they were doing hysteria in its entirety yep. so i had to learn all that plus they were doing a whole deep cut collection so i had that it was so cool for me because Def Leppard, the first song I ever heard from Def Leppard was Rock Brigade, you know, the oh, first yeah. song yep. through the night. So yep. to learn that, I mean, that was for me, you know, I love every 
part of Def Leppard, whether it's the on through the night, high and dry, the, you know, the, let's say the less produced part, but I love learning all of it. And I love every, you know, sort of uh, incarnation of the Def Leppard sound, you know, whether it's, you know, the po the pre Mutlang, you know, the first record, I love it. You know, it's my first thing. And I still think, and I still tell those guys, man, I would say to Sav, you know, cause he like writes the set list. I go, can we, can we just do rock brigade tonight? And you go, sorry, mate, can't do it. You know, <laughs> as much as you like it, you know, most people will be going, you know, they, they, they don't know the song, which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I learned Wasted, you know, there was one night where I think we were going to try to play that, but that never worked out. But, you know, so I had a lot of time to get prepared for that. And um, and then I went on the road with them in the summer of 2014 on the Kiss Def Leppard tour. And I got to do sound checks and rehearse and get my inner mix. So when I was going to do the shows and, you know, my first real shows, which was Wembley, uh, the NFL pregame thing at Wembley Stadium, that was my first show. And and then four others, you know, I was I was really well rehearsed at that point. You know, though we never did a full show rehearsal because the Def Leppard guys, they don't like to rehearse. So I was like, you, you know the drill. And I knew I had seen them so many times. I knew every move, every place where Viv needed to be. I knew every I knew every move that every guy in the band made. So um you know, that was cool. And, you know, again, one of the really neat things was being out with Kiss on that. And I remember doing the first one of the first sound checks I did with Def Leppard on the on the on the tour was at the Sarah, the SPAC, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. Mm -hmm. And I remember strapping my guitar on and we do hysteria was the sound check song and i remember man we launch into it and it's cool and everything sounding really great you know your in-ears it sounds like you're playing to a record it sounds so good and i remember looking over my right shoulder and there's paul stanley and eric singer watching paul stanley's going like this he's got a smile on like oh. paul watching oh me my god and it was like, I was like, holy shit, here I am fucking playing with Def Leppard. And there's one of my heroes, Paul, one of my biggest influences, Paul Stanley, watching me, you know, do sound check with him. And so that was really special. And to be, you know, to be on that tour with, you know, with Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer, who are also very good friends. And, yep. you know, and of course, they know all about being fill in. So it was mm -hmm. cool to be, you know, the first night I remember I went in the dressing room with Gene and Paul and, and Eric and Tommy and told them what's going on because nobody they didn't know what was happening. And so it was really, you know, and they were I, I could see that Gene and Paul were like, you know, they were definitely really happy for me. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, getting into like that next level of being in the, being in with the big boys, if you know what I mean. Definitely. Crazy. Um, yeah. And Steve, I, I, I you know, um, I know we're, we're coming up on the hour here, but I, I want to go over uh, this, this tour that you're kicking off on, I believe it's November 26th. Is that right? The Lamp Theater in yep. uh, Irwin, PA, right? Irwin, PA, the Wizards yeah. of Winter. Wizard, so can you talk just a, a little bit yep. about the Wizards of Winter? Um, what, what is it? You know, I, 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 read about you know the bio uh, some of the band members that you're working with are you know real prominent musicians uh yeah that 
will be recognizable to our audience the name you know the name of the bands that they're associated with yeah yeah well the band started the wizards of winter started you know about a decade ago by uh sharon and scott kelly who are you know burden and Passaic county people fairlawn and uh um uh where is it fair fairlawn or hawthorne area whatever and uh they started the band and it you know it was the love of christmas of course and you know t i i believe tso trans siberian orchestra was a big influence and so you know they built this thing up and i joined in 2019 um and did my first 25 date nationwide tour with them and it's been a you know an incredible experience and um we've got some notable musicians in it john o'reilly who's the drummer he was in rainbow for a little while he was ah. in an orchestra for for uh 15 years he was the original wow. drummer in tso mm -hmm. um the bass player who's also my bass player in tokyo motor fist the great greg smith who plays who was also in rainbow who played with alice cooper and and now is ted nugent's bass player and and uh you know singer so you know just just incredible you know another local jersey guy singing manny cabo who was on the voice um he's a union new jersey guy he's singing lead and it's just a phenomenal show it's kind of again it's a hard rock Christmas thing, you know, symphony orchestra type thing, keyboards, violin, um, flute, um, along with uh, two great guitar players, myself and uh, Fred Gorhow, who's a South Jersey guy, so, um, you know, great guitar player. And um, yeah, we got 15 dates. We're going, you know, pretty much just an East Coast tour this year. Mm, yep. You know, as we know, the COVID challenges are are uh really hard to keep something out on the road but uh we're going to be out on two tour buses and you know doing it because you know we 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 feel that the people it's it's kind of getting to a point where people are starting really starting to feel comfortable going out again and with people being vaccinated and wearing masks and doing the right thing you know mm -hmm. a lot of these performing arts centers and theaters these beautiful theaters that we get to play at around the country are um you know starting to open their doors again so what better way than the wizards of winter doing their christmas dream tour uh for for the whole family because it's definitely a fun family show yeah Excellent. i mean i think it, it's just like the, the perfect anybody you know who's looking for holiday ideas as far as you know go, you know sure go ahead go and see the radio city rockets but i think also this this um, you know, Wizards of Winter tour. I was watching some clips. It's it just such an incredible display of musicianship, you know, uh, all around. Um, and yep. you're going to be December 15th at the Bergen Performing Arts Center in Englewood. Great venue. So for oh, any yeah. of our listeners here in New Jersey, please, you know, buy tickets to that December 15th. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, yeah. Southern, and then Southern Jersey, we're doing the Lavoie Theater, which is down, you know, I believe down off the turnpike somewhere. But okay. so, yeah, we're we're around and we got a bunch of, you know, we, we've got Staten Island at the, the end of December and a couple Pennsylvania dates, which aren't too far. So there's definitely, a, a, I think, a date that anybody can make. Penn's Peak out in Pennsylvania, which isn't too far in Jim Thorpe for all the uh, northern Jersey people. But it's definitely a lot of fun. And then this Saturday night, you know, my my uh, my bandmate and one of my dearest friends in the world, myself and Eric Martin, the great vocalist. Mr. Big. Yeah. Yep. We'll Great be rocking band. Debonair Music Hall in Teaneck, New Jersey. So everybody get out and uh, come down and party with us. But uh, Definitely. And, I yeah. also, and then, uh, this is a, an acoustic show, right, uh, Right, Steve? 
Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the the Acoustic Glory Tour that I like to call it. Ah, nice. It's going to be cool, man. I'm going to start the show out doing a couple trickster songs. And we got a little bit of a, you know, I got my uh, keyboard friend, Chris McCoy, who plays with Tokyo Motor Fist and also plays in the Ted Poley band. He's playing keyboards. And I got Jason Draven playing bass. So it's going to be, and we got Ben Hans playing a little percussion. So yeah, it's going to be acoustic, but it's not going to be two guys with acoustic guitar. It's going right. to have a little bit of low end and, you know, some excitement. I'm going to be doing a little acoustic shred guitar work. So, you know, <laughs> awesome. Wait to hear yeah, that. A little, you know, and a little, you know, Spanish fly or Bergen County fly. <laughs> there we <laughs> go. Ripping on the guitar. Spin try, on it, trying to play some, pl- trying to play some of that Mr. Big stuff, you know, got to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And so also, it, it, say December, I'm sorry, December 17th, Tokyo Motor Fist. Uh, releasing a limited edition color vinyl reissue of yes. their self-titled debut album. I highly recommend both of those Tokyo Motor Fist records, by the way. They are fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. There's only going to be 300 copies available, so go to the Frontiers Music homepage. Scroll down to the uh, heading that says Vinyl and order it. Yeah, and also go to uh, my favorite vinyl store, Sound Exchange in Wayne, New Jersey, which Great. is uh, you know is going to definitely have some copies of it. And uh, I'm a big vinyl guy, so yeah, this is a dream come true to finally have what I like to say, the fist on vinyl. <laughs> Sweet. Did you have a question, Nick? I'm sorry. I, 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 I was going to say, uh, Steve, if people want to get in touch with you, um, uh, where can they find you on social media? Uh, wh- where can they find you as far as you know, website? You know, like <laughs> promote uh, yourself. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Steve Brown Rocks, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok. Uh, SteveBrownRocks.com is a, is a website. And, you know, I'm, I'm around. You can find me. I'm not too hard. You know, not too hard to find. And, uh, you know, like I said, we'll be out on the East Coast rocking it for the next couple weeks. And uh, I look forward to seeing everybody. And, uh, you know, hopefully, again, all you all you Jersey, all you Jersey people, we got to see you. Shkada deets, shkada bitch. (laughs) Steve, uh, just to, to, to close the episode down. Um, one final question. What, what is it that you attribute the popularity of music festivals like Rocklahoma and M3, which have bands like Warrant, Doc and Extreme, Vixen and Slaughter? Like, what is it about that, that the 80s era of those, you know, the bands of, of that ilk that has stood the test of time and is as endearing as ever? That's what I want to one. That's the final question. You take it. Well, again, what did we say before? Growing up in the 80s was the greatest time in the world to grow up. And, you know, those bands, Warrant, Trickster, Firehouse, uh, Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, we represent all fun, good, clean fun. Well, maybe not all clean fun, but you know what I mean? Um, It was the greatest, and people... You know, look, we all want to time travel. If we could go back to 1988 again, uh, I'm sure we'd all do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd pay I'd pay a lot of money to do it. You know what I mean? To be able to go back for one night, you know. But um, these shows enable people to sort of do that, you know, where you can go and you can see, you know, M3 Festival, which is, you know, what's cool about that. uh, Eric Baker, who is the main promoter on that. 
he's a Jersey guy. He's from Livingston, you know, and he, he's, he used to work at MCA records and he worked the first trickster record. So I get to go play this festival M3 down in Maryland with the guy who helped make trickster become successful, you know, and fantastic. Um, yeah. And be with all of our friends. So I love playing all these festivals because we get to be, you know, it's like a, it's like a messed up high school reunion, you know, rock and roll high school reunion where all the bands are together. We're hanging in each other's dressing rooms, eating each other's food, drinking each other's beer, you know, and it's just one big party. So, you know, I love doing these, you know, the rock festivals we will be out. Tokyo Motor Fist will be out in um, February of 2020, uh, 2022 doing the uh, Monsters of Rock Cruise. And oh wow! Those, yeah, those are great. I just got back from the Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Cruise with my oh, '80s nice. show Rubik's Cube. Yeah, so Chris, Chris is a dear friend, one of my one of my mm -hmm. great friends. Fozzie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. PJ, PJ is the new bass player in Fozzie. So, oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, Dave Farley. Yeah, yeah. Congrats. Yeah. To him. So you gotta yeah, you gotta have PJ on the show to talk about. Yeah, right. Oh, there we go. Because he's from he's from uh, Ridgefield, New Jersey. So. That's a whole, okay, yep. that's a whole nother different thing, man. When PJ joined the band <laughs> driving up, you know, he didn't drive yet. So we used to have to go pick him up for rehearsals, driving up there the first couple of times, man. That was like going, might as well have been going to Staten Island, man. It was like, <laughs> you know, another world for us. Totally. Right. Uh, and and uh, to, to end things off, uh, PJ, we, we usually like to play like a little Steve. quick game. <laughs> I, 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 PJ, <laughs> Steve, right. sorry, we kept saying PJ. <laughs> PJ would be honored, you know. We're, yes, we're, yeah, we, we were thinking so about him. Fun. Yeah, we, we, we finish each other's sentences, you know. Nice. Right. Uh, we, we like to usually play a, a little quick game, and I have yeah. one for Jersey Rockers, what exit? So basically, tell me the town where in New Jersey these rockers were born or grew up. So... How about um, what one of your, I believe, influences, Richie Sambora? Wh where was he uh, born, or where did he grow up? Uh, I think he was born in in. Uh, well, he, I think he was born in uh, Newark. He was born in, but you know, grew up in in Woodbridge. You know, Perth Amboys. Well, so exit one twenty one twenty nine. Yes, yes, exit one twenty nine, and right. he was actually born in Perth Amboy. Right and uh and raised in uh, Woodbridge, as you said. Yeah, Jeez, um, Steve, you're you're good at this game. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> P P Steve has right like the, the, the Jersey uh, music knowledge. Like, <laughs> on, um, how about this uh this one, Glenn Danzig? Where's he born? Oh, Glenn Danzig grew up in Lodi, New Jersey. Oh, there we go. That's where my wife, my wife Cosette's from Lodi. We know all those guys, man. Oh my God! Yeah, I remember Gary. Steve Zing, all the Danzig and, you know, all the Misfits guys. Yep. Yeah, Lodi, Lodi, a lot of, yeah. lot of friends there. Yeah, I remember going to Wild Mike's uh, on Essex Street in Lodi <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> oh, Wild Mike's. I still talk to Wild Mike once in a while. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I built still a computer around. for him years ago. Oh, uh, <laughs> small world. <laughs> um, how about the late Pat Denizio? Of the Smithereens. Yeah, well, well, he was from, weren't they from, I know Dennis Dykin's a very good friend of mine. I love Dennis. Mm -hmm. um, they Weren't they from Keyport or Union? So one. Um, well, the, the band was from uh, Carteret. Carteret. But, 
Yeah, but Pat himself. Rahway? No. Not not Rahway. Uh, he, he was born in Plainfield and he raised in uh, Scotch Plains. Yeah. Yes, okay. Scotch Plains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's funny. My our manager in Trickster, he he was he, there from. They were from Clark, and they. Oh, okay. Got, uh, um, huh. But yeah, God rest his soul, man. Yeah, yeah. We love Pat. Me too. Yeah. It. Um. How about uh, a little closer, Sandy Soraya? Oh God, Rochelle I had that Park. Right, Rochelle Park. No, not you. Got you. Got to go uh, the opposite direction. Pagoda, right? Pagoda. There we go. (laughs) We don't have any sound effects in this in this uh, show. You know, like ding, ding, ding. (laughs) And last one, Joe Lynn Turner. Who have you played Uh, with? And yeah, right. Of course. Joe Linguido, um, Hackens- <laughs> Hackensack, New Jersey. Sub yeah. it out. There we go. Oh, I, I, I used to live right by him. Yeah. <laughs> I well, still live I in Hackensack. <laughs> I've told this story numerous times, but we used to ride. I used to ride my bike over to Joe Lynn Turner's house, his house on Summit Avenue. And we mm-hmm. used to bring him demo tapes of uh, Trickster. And Joe was oh, always so man. great. And I, lo- I love that guy, you know, and, it, you know, his old bandmate, Chuck Berge, is the drummer of Tokyo Motor Fist. So there we you know, go. I've, yeah. I've known I've known Chuck and, and, and Joe since I was a young. I, I mean, I was 12 years old. I think the first time I met uh, I met Chuck, I mean, Chuck, Chuck and Joe. And, um, you know, and then the other great local Bergen County legend is Richie Rano from Stars. Who yeah, right. was the first real rock star I ever met as a little kid. I met him at the um, at the two guys carnival. Summer carnival. Oh, oh no, oh, oh, was that In the Columbus, um... where Caldor was? Oh right, yeah, right, I right. Where Caldor was? Yeah. Oh geez, yeah. Right, it was Cal, but it might have been even Caldor, but I think it was still two guys. But I remember this is a great story because I messed this up because I remember I did a gig with Joel and Turner years ago and Richie was there. And I told the story where I said Joel and Turner was the first rock star I ever met. And it wasn't. It was Richie Rano from Stars. And it was at this thing. And I saw him and I was already a huge. This was probably 1980. So I was a huge Kiss Van Halen fan. Had all the magazines. And I remember, I think it was Roxine Magazine. There was this great picture of Kiss and Stars when they toured together where they're all backstage. And I remember and I knew that, you know, Stars was kind of New Jersey, New York based. And I remember and I saw Richie there and he had a black leather jacket. He looked cool as hell. And I walked up to him and I like tugged on his jacket. He had his son was on one of the rides. And I said, hey, aren't you Richie? From, you know, and he and he goes, he goes, yeah, what do you think? I'm Richie Blackmore. And I go, no, you're Richie. Rat-. I, I was like, no, you're Richie Rano from Saul. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's oh, fucking true, true story, man. And he oh. gave me, I'll never forget it. He gave me a kiss. And he gave me a kiss backstage pass, the 19 set, which I have. It's not the same one, but it's from the 75 tour. And he gave me a kiss backstage pass and a cheap trick backstage pass. Oh, that's incredible. And man, I, you know, it was just unbelievable. And then, you know, as years went on, of course, you know, I became really good friends and Richie's a dear friend and I love him, but that's the true story. So Rich, I'm sorry. You are number one. You are the first rock star. I ever met 
and um, and we're still friends to this day. You know, probably not to not to tell everybody how old you are, but you're definitely you know one of my <laughs> oldest rock star friends. <laughs> What a great way to close the show. Oh, <laughs> that, God. that is incredible. Excellent story. Steve, there. thank you so yeah, much for you. being yeah, our guest tonight. Yeah, thank you. And, and thank you for, for, thank you for representing New Jersey, yeah. especially Bergen County. I <laughs> love, I carrying love the torch for us. Yes. I love, you know, again, you guys know how much I love New Jersey, especially Bergen County. You know, you guys, all of you, you're near and dear to my heart. I love you. And no, uh, we'll see you soon. Definitely, Steve. Excellent. We'll see you out there on tour. Cheers. Good luck with everything. You deserve it, man. You're Thank a you. real true uh, true legend. Thank you. Excellent. And for What Exit Jersey Stories, I've been Nick Franco. I'm Pete Riario. And our guest has been Steve Brown. Thank you, everyone. One and only. Take care. Cheers, Steve. <laughs>